want to focus on a few in very important claims that Prabhupada made, which I think really get to the heart of um, what distinguishes ISKCON or the Hare Krishna movement uh, as a very special spiritual movement. One thing Prabhupada said often is that um, philosophy, that religion without philosophy tends to become sentimentalism or fanaticism, which has been one of the big problems uh, in the last uh, almost 2,000 years in the West. And then he said also, of course, that uh, philosophy, philosophy without religion tends to be just dry speculation and nothing proves that more uh, strikingly than Western philosophical history, which after 2000 years uh, keeps striking out essentially. In fact, uh, anyway, that's a whole other topic. The, uh, the difficulty of Western philosophy, where it's ended up. I remember I gave a talk at University of Colorado in Boulder uh, several years ago. And uh, so the, the room where I was going to speak was just a few doors down from the office of the philosophy department. And so we were a little early, so I was, you know, snooping around. And so on, on, on the uh, bulletin board of the philosophy department, they had uh, a transcript of a talk given by the chairman of the philosophy department at a major university, a talk given to the parents of graduating philosophy majors. And basically the entire talk was trying to convince the parents that they had not wasted their money on their children because their children majored in philosophy. <laughs> and trying to assure them that actually, even with a philosophy major, you can get a real job. That, like, for example, it's, you know, it'll help you in law school or in business and so on. And so if you, if you do, I guess what you call the, the sociology of philosophy, in other words, if you study the role of philosophy, the role of the philosopher in society throughout history, uh, it's fallen on hard times and basically self-destructed. Uh, because of their impudence and hubris uh, and thinking they were too good to do metaphysics, which is, it, it's like one of those weapons in the Puranas where some Asura throws a weapon and if the weapon doesn't uh, strike the enemy, the weapon comes down and back and kills the person that throws it. And this is exactly what happened to Western philosophy, essentially. Uh, with the rise of science, you know, the explosive, spectacular growth of science in the 19th century and the 20th century. Of course, the, uh, there was one particular project of applied science, which absolutely, well, totally transformed the world. And that application of science, which transformed the world, was called the Industrial Revolution which changed everything. And of course, then we have the digital revolution, which is just uh, basically 
it, it's still sort of, you know, feeding off the same fuel because in the um, early part of the 20th century, uh, science uh, made uh, sort of striking discoveries in the subatomic realm. If you think of Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, he's talking about, you know, things like planets and the law of gravity and sort of big stuff. You know, you can, an apple falls off a tree. Why does an apple fall down and not up? So it's sort of, you know, macro physics. But then you have the, uh, the uh, sort of these great breakthroughs in studying the subatomic world. And of course, to show you how that got applied, applied science, uh, think of the word electron and then think of the word electronics. And that says it all. Right? No. Did you, as in, well, I mean, it says it all if you're talking about the collapse of human civilization also, but it's, frankly, when I go to the dentist or the doctor, I, that's the one time I celebrate uh, all this digital technology. <laughs> so, uh, Meanwhile, back on the philosophy ranch, you know, here these philosophers were sort of speculating and theorizing for over, well over 2,000 years and just basically going around in circles. And um, despite all their sort of brave attempts to justify all the time and money they wasted, really not taking us closer to a serious understanding of things that are really important in life. And meanwhile, science is just, you know, just amazingly powerful. So they had a, um, a group of uh, prominent philosophers in the 1920s who met in Vienna, which used to be a much more important city, I guess, than it is now. But Anyway, so, um, and it was called, in, in the, of course, in German, uh, the Wienkreis, which means the, the Vienna Circle. And basically, they addressed this issue that who cares about philosophy, science is everything. And they thought, well, philosophy has to be scientific. Really bad move, but that's what they decided. So in order to make philosophy scientific, they thought they had to do away with metaphysics. Uh, metaphysics, basically, this is a, a term used by Aristotle or by his students. Meta in Greek means beyond or after. So what's beyond the physical world, the metaphysical? So, for example, values. Uh, actually, ironically, uh, the American political system, which, which has spread all around the world, democracy, is based not on science. It actually contradicts all science and is based on a metaphysical assumption which is that we're equal. Now empirically, that is utter nonsense because if we test everyone just in this room, we can't all run as fast, we're not all equally artistic, we don't have the same emotional IQ, don't all have the same amount of money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, every conceivable, every conceivable empirical test that you could apply to humanity would show invariably that we're not equal. And so it's interesting that this political system arose which ignores and defies basically all empirical science and says, despite all that, we're equal. Now, how did 
people like Bakta Tom, <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson, you know, how did these people justify this, from the scientific point of view, absurd claim that we're equal? Um, he justified it in the Declaration of Independence with a little help from his friends like Benjamin Franklin, but he justified it by appealing to what he thought was a metaphysical fact and a self-evident fact. The Declaration of Independence begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, uh, interestingly, Thomas Jefferson uses the exact same term, or Tom and Ben, sounds like an ice cream store, that's Ben and, <laughs> that's ben and Jerry. Anyway, Tom and Ben, uh, justify, or, or they claim that, that we're equal, they say it's a self-evident fact that we're created equal. Now, self-evident is a technical philosophical term, and which they borrowed from Aristotle. And what's interesting about this term is Lord Chaitanya used it also. It's the same term that Lord Chaitanya used. So here you have this, uh, you know, great threesome, you know, we have Lord Chaitanya, Aristotle, and Thomas Jefferson, right? Great team. So, so I'll just say a few words about what it means to be self-evident, because that's exactly what Lord Chaitanya, the term Lord Chaitanya used, literally, Svata Pramanya. Pramanya means that something which, const which constitutes evidence, pramana. And, uh, Anyway, a little linguistic detail that you may find amusing. And that is that the word pramana, uh, it's pramana. Mana comes from the Sanskrit root ma, which means to measure. And therefore, the measurement of something is also called matra. And we still have this word in English from Sanskrit through the Greek and Latin as the word metric or the word meter. So metric is just matra. Anyway, so... Pramana, which is the standard word for evidence or proof, literally just means the measure of something. And swa uh, means uh, by itself, and we still have that in English also. Well, if you, anyone here know any Latin? Oh, you know Spanish. In Spanish, it's just su, like mi casa e su casa. <laughs> so is sui in Latin, like sui generis in its own category. In Italian, swa in uh, Portuguese, swa, then Sanskrit, swa, <laughs> like swaraja. So, um, so this is all sans. I mean, this is all Sanskrit, and we still have these words in English. And the same is true for many, many English words. But I won't go into all of them right now because there are hundreds of thousands of words in English. But um, so swa, swa pramana, or the Lord Chaitanya used uh, the the form swatat pramana which means by itself. Swatat means by itself, pramanya, it, it acts as evidence, it, it acts as proof. So, um, so Lord Chaitanya used that term, swatat pramanya, in his discussions with uh, Sarvabhoma Vatacharya and Prakashananda. And Lord Chaitanya was claiming that the Vedas are self-evident. 
you want to go buy some popcorn out in the lobby, you can get some. So, um, I'll wait to the phone conversations then. So, uh, there's a little phone conversation going on there, so I'm just going to wait till it's done. All set? So, um, Lord Chaitanya was claiming that Vedic literature is self-evidently true. Now, I want to explain what self-evident means in a serious philosophical context. And this will get to the heart of what it means for Krishna consciousness to be a science, which we claim. We claim it's a spiritual science. So, um, there is a field of philosophy called epistemology from the Greek word episteme, which means knowledge. So it's the philosophy of knowledge, which basically is how do you know you know, or how do you know you know you know, and so on. You can keep going back until you go completely crazy and then you get money from the government. So anyway, so epistemology means under what grounds, or, or not under what, on what grounds, in what circumstances are you justified? Are you logically justified in saying that you know something, you don't simply believe it? Because you can claim that you know something and someone else can say, well, that's just your opinion. So the issue is, what has to be the case? Under what circumstances are you, can you logically insist, rationally insist, it's not my opinion, I actually know it. So maybe everyone can turn their cell phone off because it makes it a lot easier to concentrate if people are actually, you know, not on their cell phones. So, um, so that's basically what epistemology is. Under what circumstances uh, are you justified, rationally justified to say you know something? So when we look at the history of this field of philosophy in the West, what we see is that um, ultimately you can't prove everything. Aristotle, Hare Krishna, you're just in time for Aristotle. <laughs> Can you all hear me? Okay, it is a fact. It is, a, it is just a fact of logic that in order to pursue any system of knowledge, whether it's empirical science or speculative philosophy or Krishna consciousness, in order to pursue any system of knowledge, you have to claim that something proves itself, and that's the basis of all your other proofs. I'll give you an example of what I mean, because that may be a little hard to understand. Let's say you're an empirical scientist, and you claim that by studying the material world in certain systematic ways, that you can derive reliable knowledge about the world. And that, for example, the earth really does go around the sun, that that's a fact, it's not just our opinion, it's not a religious belief, 
we know that the sun goes around uh, earth goes around the sun now that can be challenged that you know you really know the earth goes around the sun or do you or is there even really a sun in the sky and that can be challenged the first person to let's i think western philosopher to really systematically challenge that not that he didn't think the sun is in the sky, but he showed how you could doubt it, was Descartes, Rene Descartes in the 1600s in his meditations. He said, what if, what if you are actually just a brain in the laboratory of some evil genius? So, you know, you're just a brain or some kind of thinking mechanism. Could you please ask them not to, uh, Speaking there, Hare Krishna programs are notorious for being sort of uh, noise rich. Anyway, so um, what if, so how, how can you prove, how can you prove that there's really a, a material world outside of your mind. How can you prove, or the modern way they talk about it is a brain in a vat. Like what if you're just a brain in a vat? How can you prove that you're not simply experiencing a big illusion? And in fact, there is no world outside your own mind. That, that philosophy, by the way, is called solipsism. So, um, any, the rules of logic would dictate that you cannot prove that there's a real world outside your mind by pointing to an object in the world. For example, you can't say, okay, look, here's a glass of water. I can drink it. You know, I can hold it in my hand. You can hold it. You can steal it from me and you can drink it or something. I feel like I'm doing a commercial for a water company or something. So, <laughs> Now, the problem, the reason you can't do that, the reason you can't prove there's a real world outside your mind by pointing to some, any material thing, is that that would constitute circular reasoning, which is a logical fallacy. Circular reasoning means that you're, you're trying to prove something. In this case, you're trying to prove there's a real world outside your mind. So to prove that, you give us evidence for that, the very thing you're trying to prove. In other words, you're just going around in a circle. Because if the material world is just an illusion and you really are a brain in a vat, which is kind of, ugh, but, but let's say you are just a, I like Descartes, it's less icky. You know, if you're say a brain in a laboratory somewhere, and if they're, and you're just being fed this illusion that there's a world outside your mind, if that's the case, then this glass of water is also an illusion. You can't point to an object in the world as proof there's a real world because anything in the world, including your body, this glass is real only if the world is real. But you don't know if the world is real. That's what you're trying to prove. So until you've proved the world is real, you can't give any object in the world as evidence that the world is real. And since, so therefore, 
you cannot do material science unless you first declare that uh, there is a fact which proves itself. I don't have to prove it because it proves itself. For example, you could say that when I experience the material world, when I wake up in the morning and open my eyes or I listen to the sounds, the world presents itself to me in such a way. My experience of the world is so real that it proves itself to me. In other words, you have to claim something is self-evident. And this is a term Lord Chaitanya <sighs> used. This is a term Aristotle used. And uh, this is also the term This is also the term that um, <clears throat> Aristotle and uh, Jefferson. Jefferson, that's right, thank you, in the Declaration of Independence. So it's like Aristotle gave the example that if an army is losing a battle and they're being pushed back, they have to take a stand, otherwise they'll be defeated. So you you have to claim that something proves itself. Otherwise, as Aristotle put it, you will be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. An infinite regress of proofs. And so, um, so in material science, you have to claim it is self-evident that there's a real world outside your mind. Now, because you can't claim that within your science, Actually, empirical science is ultimately based on, not science, it's based on metaphysics. Because the declaration that there's a real world is not an empirical fact, it's something which goes beyond empiricism that you just say it's the nature of my experience that I declare it's, it proves itself to me. When I was at Harvard, actually, one time I was walking across a Harvard yard and they have a memorial church in the middle of the yard. And so I thought I'd, you know, stop in and see what the competition's doing. <laughs> you know, it's like you're selling, renting Hertz, you know, you stop in Ava, see what they're doing. So what's interesting is there was a lecture going on by a, you know, Harvard professor. He was giving a sermon. And when I went to enter, uh, the usher is very politely informed me I couldn't go in because they have a certain level. Uh, they're very serious about what they're doing. And so once the lecture starts, you can't go in or out. Just like ISCOM. <laughs> and, and the same is actually true of, let's say, like a serious concert, like, you know, not a rock and roll concert. You could, you know, Throw, throw a bomb and no one would notice it. But but let's say like opera or a serious thing, they actually have ushers that you can't just walk in and disturb it. So I'm kind of coming from that culture. Just wanna let you know, I'm not. I'm not. So um, anyway, so science, but so it's very, going back to the, the Wienkreis, the circle of Vienna, which in the 1920s tried to sort of abolish religion and destroy metaphysics and 
you know, we have to be scientific, therefore we can't talk about the solar God, we can only talk about material things. The problem with that is that when you claim that only empirically proved claims can be taken seriously, that claim is not empirical. In other words, you can't empirically prove that only empirical processes are valid. You can't empirically prove that. That would be circular reasoning. It's a logical fallacy. And therefore, it's like never say never. So if the statement is true that only empirical claims are serious, if the statement is true, then it's not true because it's not empirical. So, uh, therefore, uh, a statement which, if it's true, is not true, is nonsense. It's basically just, there's a word for that in English, it's nonsense. But anyway, so, um, so Lord Chaitanya, now let's get to what Lord Chaitanya is saying, because Lord Chaitanya uses the same term as Aristotle. Lord Chaitanya said that the truth of our sacred books, that truth is self-evident. And so first of all, what does that mean? What that means is that, let's say you read Bhagavad Gita, seriously, and uh, you experience it. You're not simply reading a book about something, you are actually going through a sort of, you know, Vaikuntha rabbit hole into a different realm. And so when we read Bhagavad Gita, bless you, when we read Bhagavad Gita in the right consciousness, we are experiencing something. We're not just reading about something. We are experiencing that Krishna is God. We are experiencing that we are eternal souls. And therefore, the text is not merely telling us about something. The text is the thing itself. So if you look at philosophy of language, since we're uh, you know indulging in so much philosophy here tonight, there are different categories of language. There are different categories of language. For example, there's one category of language called performative speech. Performative speech uh, means that you say something or write something and you're saying it or writing it makes it a fact. To give a simple example in baseball, when the umpire says you're out. So when the umpire in baseball says you're out, the umpire, that's not, it's a very different statement or it's a different kind of language than the, uh, let's say, the sportscaster saying, he's out. When the, when, the, when, when, the, when the sportscaster says, he's out, that's a descriptive statement. When the umpire says, he's out, that's a performative. It actually makes it a fact. Another example of performative speech is when a, let's say, legally qualified person says, I now pronounce you man and wife. So that's different if someone says, oh, they're man and wife now. That's just a, de a descriptive statement. You're just describing something. But when the justice of the peace says you are man and wife, 
that those words create the fact. And so if we look at Krishna's speech in the Bhagavad Gita and we say, what, you know, what kind of speech is this? It's descriptive. Krishna is describing things such as, for example, I have different energies or I'm the source of everything. So it's descriptive speech, but it's also performative because by, by describing, yeah, the children go do something else if they're quiet. I mean, I don't want to torture them here. So someday when you grow up, maybe leave me my client. So <laughs> so Krishna certainly is describing different things in the Bhagavad Gita, but it's also, he's also creating the reality of it just by, it's, we have the same thing in the Bible. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So that's performative speech. When, when God says, let there be light, there is light, because that statement brings about the reality that it describes. And so basically you have the same thing in the Bhagavad Gita. So if you read the Bhagavad Gita in the proper consciousness, you experience the reality through the words. And therefore you're not simply believing in something, you're actually experiencing it directly and you're experiencing it in a way which is so powerful that it cannot be refuted. I'll give you an example of that. Consider the experience all of us have all the time that we're sleeping, we're dreaming, and then we wake up. Now, when you wake up from a dream, there are two logical possibilities. One is that you were in a more real world. You were in, quote unquote, the real world, and you woke up in a less real world. In other words, due to a misunderstanding, which has gone on for a very long time, People are calling reality a dream and a dream reality, or they're calling, yeah, and a, and a dream reality. Or in those famous words, merrily, 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 life is but a dream, right? Row, row, row your boat. So now, if we ask someone, if we ask someone, how do you know that you were dreaming and you woke up and now you're experiencing the real world. How do you know the world you experience now is more real ontologically, which in philosophy just means, you know, philosophy of existence. How do we know that the world you're in right now is more real than the dream world? Prove it. Of course, you can't prove it because, I mean, you can't prove it empirically. We can't prove it empirically because you can't go back to the dream world. You lost it. And there are certain, I, I think we're not allowed to call them primitive anymore, but there are certain, let's say, I think we're allowed to say very simple societies in the world that, um, that actually believe that there's a dreamland, which is sort of, you know, that's the goal. So anyway, to answer the question, because you know, if I if I get this right, if I answer the question, I can win a refrigerator or maybe I'm like a uh, electric lawnmower or something. So the reason 
the reason we accept the world we experience when we're quote unquote awake as more real is because it self-evidently is more real. That's, I mean, that's the only explanation. There's no way you can explain it. The only way to explain how we know that when we wake up, the world is more real, the only way we can explain that we just know there's a real world outside my mind is that we are made in such a way or we exist in such a way that we are capable of making ontological distinctions. We are capable of ranking, you know, like they have the football rankings, you know? So in the same way, we are capable of ranking, of rating different human experiences in terms of real and more real and most real. That we are able to do that. That's simply a fact that we are capable, just like we're capable of drinking water, it's just a fact. So that being the case, when you come to Krishna consciousness, if you really get it, I mean, it's not just sort of a ritual thing or, you know, social pressure, I'm supposed to be doing this. But if you are really in Krishna consciousness, then you know that Krishna consciousness is more real than material consciousness in exactly the same way that you know that your waking consciousness is more real than your dreaming consciousness. And you know all of that because it's all self-evident. And that's the basis for sanity, and that's the basis of life. Without assuming that certain things are true because they're self-evident, you cannot be a scientist, you cannot be an atheistic philosopher. By the way, atheism is a bad philosophy. <laughs> Uh, not just because I'm pious and they're not. <laughs> it's just subjectively bad philosophy. Because for the simple agnosticism is you know more interesting, but atheism is bad philosophy because if there's no God, then no one knows everything, and if no one knows everything, no one knows if there's a God or not. Right. right. Oh. If you claim no one knows everything, but I know that there's, it's just, it's not very bright. <laughs> so agnosticism, you could say, is a legitimate philosophical position. It's not, it's not the real truth, I and mean, it couldn't be, because agnostic is just, it just comes from the Sanskrit, agyana, agyani. So agnostic just means I don't know. And so there is a truth of the matter. So agnosticism cannot be the truth. It can only be a psychological truth. It can't be an ontological truth. In other words, if someone says, I don't know if there's a God, that can be a true statement. If the person speaks in earnest, someone may just say that because they don't want to get thrown out of an academic party or something or lose, you know. Anyway, so, but if you say in earnest, you really mean it, that I don't know if there's a God or not, that's honest, it's respectable, but it's, not a, it's, it's only a truth about your mind. Because ultimately there is a God or there isn't a God. One of those two statements is true. And, if, and so I don't know is only a truth about my mental state. It's not a truth about the world. Like if I say, for example, I don't know how many people live in the uh, third largest city of Albania. I mean, probably many of you do know that, but 
Just kidding. Anyway, so <laughs> so if I say I don't know how many people live in the third largest city of Albania, I'm just explaining that I don't know. There is a third largest city of Albania, and there is a precise number of people who are actually within the city, city limits of that city right now. So there is a precise number of people. I just don't know it. Or let's say, for example, I say, I don't know if it's going to rain tomorrow, especially because, you know, the weather predicted it. I mean, the weather channel, which, you know, throws it into serious doubt. But anyway, so let's say, I say, I don't know if it's going to rain tomorrow. Now, it will rain or it won't rain. One of those two things is definitely going to happen. I just don't know it. So that's what I'm trying to say. Agnosticism is not a truth about the world. It's just a truth about individual. Something. So, uh, getting back to these points here. Uh, so if we look at the, what I would call the epistemological structure of Krishna conscious knowledge or of empirical science, structurally, they're exactly the same. Because structurally, they both declare something to be self-evident, and then they build their knowledge on that self-evident fact, on what they claim to be a self-evident fact. In the case of empirical science, they assume what they cannot prove empirically. They cannot prove within their system that there's a real world outside their mind. And then they build their system. We claim, as Lord Chaitanya said, that it's self-evident that there is reliable, objective information about the most important things in this literature, in Krishna conscious literature. There is reliable, objective, comprehensible information about the most important facts in, in, in life. In these literatures, and we experience that self-evidently, and then we infer and deduce and induct and generally have and have a good time that's my phone by the way <laughs> i'm allowed to. spiritual leaders are allowed to be hypocrites okay let me just stop that stop okay Actually, I programmed it just to entertain you. <laughs> that was a minuet, so turn to the person next to you. And... So, um... <laughs> so, so in philosophical terms, we're doing the same thing that empirical science is doing. It's, it's like in geometry, you know, you start with something given. If nothing is given, you ain't gonna do geometry. If, if you're asked to solve a geometry problem and given nothing, no geometry. So it's like that, something has to be given. And we have a different starting point. And now what's interesting is that we can prove logically that we live in a bi-dimensional universe. And so there's an empirical dimension, but there's a metaphysical dimension. It's very easy to prove that. Take, for example, here's sort of a, you know, a clear, if 
sort of horrific example. Let's say someone kills 20 innocent people, children. Now, if you feel that you are justified to say, or if you feel you can objectively say that is bad, that is morally bad, it's evil, uh, then you live in a bi-dimensional universe because the evil of an action is not empirical. If someone commits an evil act, let's say killing an innocent person, you can study that act empirically in terms of forensic technology, you can, in, in, in terms of psychology, in terms of you know, the physics of it, how did the person manage to do that? Nothing in your empirical study of that act will reveal the quality of evil because evil is not physical, it's not empirical. It's metaphysical. And so, or for example, now I already gave that example of the American political system or all over the world now. I saw this bumper sticker at Ohio University. That was really funny. It was just after uh, W, you know, the former president, George W. Bush, just after he started his, uh, his, you know, incredibly well thought out attack on Iraq. So, I'm being facetious. You're being facetious. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. So, uh, I saw a bumper sticker that said, "If you don't, if you don't cooperate with America, we are going to bring democracy to your country." <laughs> it's like a threat. But anyway, so if so, if you look at democracy, if you look at democracy, as I already said, democracy rejects all empirical evidence, like all of it, all of it, and instead bases the system on an empirically nonsensical, totally unprovable, metaphysical assumption that we're equal. That we're equal. Every stop sign in this country is based on a metaphysical assumption. Because when you put up a stop sign, it's the old freedom versus security dance. Because obviously, say you live in a town and say, we never had stop signs, we never had traffic lights in this town, it was so nice. Now, if they put a traffic light up in your little town, you have less freedom, but more security or a stop sign. So therefore, the judgment that it's better we have a little less freedom and more security. We're going to put the traffic light up here. And obviously, someone who deeply believed in this was in charge of the road that comes out to this house because they put up a, uh, a truly <laughs> remarkable number of traffic lights. So, but that is a metaphysical judgment. Security, in other words, security is an empirical fact like you, you are secure you're not secure you can look at crime statistics and you know say that that you know these are my odds these are the odds i probably won't be a victim of physical violence you know i have a 99% chance or certain parts of the country it can be a 3% chance so but when you talk about security that's just a fact when you value security when you say that we, we should have security, 
Now you're talking metaphysics. In fact, any English sentences that uses the auxiliary verb should or must is a metaphysical claim. If you say, for example, mothers should feed their children, that's a metaphysical claim. It's true, but it's not an empirical fact. There's no an empirical fact just says what is, not what should be. Any English sentence which has the auxiliary verbs should or must is a metaphysical claim. You are claiming to know something which is not empirical. So therefore, if any English sentence, or the equivalent in other languages, if any English sentence with the verb should or must is a true statement, we live in a bidimensional universe. So now, I mean, what you probably noticed by now is that the materialistic people are not really bright. And, and, and here I'm talking about philosophical materialism. I'm just talking about someone that, you know, spends too much money or just as a, you know, I don't know, just pigging out in life. By materialistic here, I'm speaking in a philosophical sense, philosophical materialism. Now, just very briefly, uh, very briefly, if you look at the history of the relationship in the West between science and religion, it's pretty awful. It actually, things were kind of going swimmingly uh, under the pagans. The pagans were actually, had a lot of common sense that kind of vanished from the world when it uh, became taken over by a Middle Eastern fanatical religion. But when you go into the collapse of pagan civilization, which had become Christian, and you go into the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, it's very interesting, just one quick thing you may not know. Why do they call it the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages? Why do they call it that? And by the way, those terms were given by the people that kind of started the Renaissance. And why did they use the word Renaissance? Rinascita in Italian, the rebirth, rebirth of what? So you have something that existed historically and then it vanishes. And when it vanishes, that's the Dark Ages. And then when that thing that used to exist comes up again, you call it a renaissance. It's a rebirth of what we used to have and what we lost in the middle part when everything became really ignorant. Now, what's interesting about those that term, Dark Ages and then Renaissance, was that it referred to Vedic culture, which people may not know. Because if you look at Greco-Roman civilization, it was just what I call Mediterranean Hinduism. I'm using the word Hinduism intentionally because it was kind of like you can worship this, you can worship that. It wasn't like real strict about what you worship. One reason was because like in India, they understood that there's one reality, Brahman, or there's one absolute truth, and there are different demigods, and that we different cultures call them different names, but they're referring to the same truth. And so uh, just as in Hinduism, they have that understanding that there's a certain spiritual or celestial reality that you can call by different names. That's exactly how 
people saw things in Greco-Roman civilization. Not only that, they spoke a they spoke languages which are very very close. I mean, you would be startled to know how close to Sanskrit, ancient Greek. I mean, I won't go into all the historical linguistic details, but it's really close. And it's not just that words sound the same. Like, for example, in Sanskrit, if you're addressing your mother, you don't say Mataji, that's Hindi. In Sanskrit, if you're speaking to your mother, you say Mater. And your father is Peter, <coughs> which is paternal in English. Daughter is Duiter. Sister is Swasser. So, I mean, we go on and on and on. And there's, I mean, these are just some of the simple ones. There's a lot more amazing things in terms of how the languages are structured, the verb systems, the noun systems, and you know, we go on and on and on like that. So you have this Indo-European civilization, which is speaking these, it's just like, you know, why is, why are Spanish and Portuguese very similar, or Italian and French, because they're near each other, or all the Romance languages together, because they used to have a common civilization. So the same way we have this Indo-European civilization, uh, which manifested in India as Vedic civilization, and even the word Veda, it's there in, in our language still. We still have the word Veda in English, and words like video, vision, um, you know, wisdom, and so on. So wit, like, you know, wit. Wit is just, actually in Sanskrit, the root of the word Veda is wit. It's, it's spelled V-I-T, vit, but if you study ancient Sanskrit grammar, it becomes clear that the V was actually pronounced W, it's wit. And you still have that in, in common Indian languages, and for example, Swaraj. It's actually Svara, I mean, it's a V, but it's pronounced Swa. So therefore, the word wit is just a Sanskrit verbal root. So you have this common civilization, even if you look at the religion, if you look at ancient Roman religion, it's just Mediterranean Hinduism. And so then it, 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 it collapsed. We know the collapse of the Roman Empire. And then Europe became dominated by a fanatical, not a tolerant, not a philosophical religion, a non-philosophical fanatical religion, which came from perhaps the most fanatical part of the world, no offense, which is the Middle East. And of course, this goes back to geographic factors and meteorological factors, because in ancient, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, uh, it's there's a lot of desert out there, and because there's a lot of desert, I mean, the best they get is semi-arid. That's like, you know, those are the, and therefore that favors tribal society, because if you look at human history, it's when human beings developed agriculture, the agrarian revolution, that you can support large-scale populations. And with large-scale populations, you get division of labor, you get sophistication in different vocations, whether it's the arts or commerce or technology. And so in, in an area which is mostly desert, you do not get large-scale civilization, although you did, but only with the rivers. Therefore, the great Egyptian civilization developed on the Nile, and then Mesopotamia, which means between the rivers, the um, you get Mesopotamian, what was now Iraq, you get these great civilizations. But for most of it, it was very dry and desertic. And therefore, you get these tribal societies, and they impose tribalism on their religion. 
And so therefore, there's a big distinction we have to make, and I'm gonna wind this up soon, because I mean, I could go on all day but, or night, but then uh, you'll probably sue me. But, and that is there's a big difference between tribal monotheism and philosophical monotheism. Tribal monotheism means you believe in one God, but my God can beat up your God. And they say, well, no, my God can beat up your God, so let's fight, and whoever, you know, kills everybody else, you know, we have the real God, which is a highly philosophical way of doing theology. So on the other hand, you have philosophical theism, where you understand philosophically that there's one God, and therefore if you worship or you intend to worship a supreme God, I mean, philosophy has no boundaries. Philosophy, so you have the same philosophy I do, so therefore we're doing the same thing. We may have different words for it, or we may have different nuances or details, but basically we're worshiping the same God. And that's how the Greco-Romans thought. That's how the Vedas teach. There's a famous verse in the Rig Veda saying the truth is one, the reality is one, but it's invoked, it's called by different names, by different people. So you have this Greco-Roman, Indic, Vedic civilization that was philosophical. By the way, these are the only two parts of the world that produce independently uh, advanced systems of philosophy. You may think, well, everyone has philosophy. No. The only two parts of the world that independently, autonomously developed full philosophy, by that I mean you have epistemology, philosophy of knowledge, ethics, you have philosophy of existence, you have, and so on, you know, real philosophy. Only two parts of the world, the uh, Europe and India. Philosophy went to China and Japan with Buddhism when it went from India. And even uh, there were there were periods of great Muslim achievements in philosophy, but they were just building on Greek philosophy because the uh, the Islamic the Muslim actually had a Renaissance before Europe, and they preserved Greek philosophy and they just built on it. They didn't have an independent system. So anyway, uh, the Renaissance. So in Krishna consciousness, and I'll end with this. Uh, so because religion became so fanatical and so destructive and and and, and horrible. I mean, the Muslim invasion of India is a great example of that and what they did. That's a, that's a very long story, the atrocities. The, I mean, Al-Biruni, who was the secretary to this, uh, wasn't Lama uh, Ghazi, the, the, the first great invader. He wrote, he, took, he kept a journal. And he actually said that, you know, our purpose here is to destroy Vedic civilization uh, because, you know, they're heathens and blah, 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 and all their, you know, nonsense. So they had they had they had, they had a, a a you know an explicit purpose of destroying Vedic civilization, which of course they didn't. And uh, so, and then the Christians, of course, were also very fanatical. I mean, if you read the history, you've heard about the Crusades, the Inquisitions, and all that. So you know you may think it was really bad, but if you actually study the real history, it was much worse than you think. So, so because you have this this awful fanatical history. I mean, there were saints, there were pious people, there were very good people, but there was there were so many atrocities, there was so much evil in the name of religion that when you get the Renaissance and the scientific revolution, the age of enlightenment, people in the West, intellectuals in the West, develop what's called the war thesis or the battle thesis by historians, which means the conviction that religion is the enemy of progress 
It's the enemy of objective knowledge. It's the enemy of science. And if we want to have real civilization and advance scientifically, we've got to get rid of religion. You see that in the French Revolution. You see it in Darwin. You see it in Marx. You see it in Freud and so on and so forth. So that was a pendulum effect, like really bad religion. And then, you know, this really bad science that hates religion. Now the pendulum's calming down and we're entering an age when we can be more objective and not, because the idea that science is naturally materialism, that, that philosophical materialism, that the only real thing is matter, is the natural philosophy of science, is absurd, self-contradictory, philosophically idiotic. And in fact, most of the great scientific discoveries in history were done by religious people. So, who often were actually inspired. For example, uh, just one last example, and I'll really stop. Uh, good old, you know, Bacta Copernicus, who discovered that the, uh, the Earth goes around the sun, the, the solar system is heliocentric, not geocentric. How did he discover that? He was inspired by Plato. Who, Plato has these religious statements where he says, God is like the sun. And, you know, the, the center of all light, you know, they're the source of all light. So inspired by a religious idea that God is light and light is a center of reality, he then did the math and figured out that the world is heliocentric. Newton, ditto for Sir Isaac, inspired by religion, trying to show that we live in a world created by a rational God, and that's why the world is rational, governed by laws. The very idea, which is the foundation of science, that ultimately the universe is not merely physically chaotic and crazy, and you can never understand it. No, the universe is logical. The universe follows rational, discoverable laws. That whole idea, which is the whole basis of science, came from ancient religious ideas. Actually, you know, give a shout out for the pagans here because, uh, you know, we're pro-pagan. <laughs> After all, we are pagans. Because um, the pagans had this great idea, and it's actually true, that God is a, is a supremely rational creature, not jealous, not angry, not a God that needs a whole list of 12-step programs but that God is actually a completely rational being. And this divine reason, this divine intelligence in God, they call the logos, the logos. That's where we get the word logic. That's why all the different sciences and in ology, except astrology and astronomers, you know, they'll never get over that, that they lost the ology word in their field. But anyway, you know, biology, geology, physiology, it's the logos of that particular area. Like bios means life in Greek. So the logic of life is biology. The logic of the earth is geology and so on. So the idea here, which they had, is that in God is this divine logos, this reason, which Plato also calls nous. And therefore, when God creates the world, he creates the world in a logical way. And because we are creatures, we are created by God, we also possess, in a smaller degree, that logos. In other words, we have the power of reason within our minds. And therefore, the logos within us 
connects with the logos within the rest of the creation. And that's why you can do science. And that's why you can understand God. It's connecting the logos and the mind of God in your mind and out in the world. And that was actually how science got started. Otherwise, if you say, I mean, it's possible we could imagine a world which is totally chaotic. There are no laws like today, apples fall down off trees. Tomorrow they go sideways and, you know, next Wednesday they go up or something. And there's no reason for it. You'll never discover a reason for it. The world's completely chaotic, crazy, period. And therefore, there's no such thing as science. There's no such thing as sanity. So it was this faith in a world, and that's why, for example, it's funny, but uh, approximately 2,000 <coughs> years ago, a little less than 2,000 years ago, there was a guy in Western Turkey who's writing a book for a new religion, and he was trying to preach to intelligent people. And so therefore, he wanted to, you know, sort of get this Logos thing into his book. So he began his book by saying, in the beginning was the Logos. Of course, that's the book of John from the New Testament. Uh, you know, trying to appeal to educated pagans by talking about the logos. Anyway, so I'll stop here. And um, so there's a lot, I mean, we could go on forever, but Prabhupada wanted us to present Krishna consciousness in a reasonable, intelligent way. He wanted us to attract intelligent people. And uh, so uh, let's go. All right, Krishna. So, any questions on these points? So, in this age where we are living right now, with the Krishna consciousness movement happening and spreading, can it be called a renaissance? Uh, it is if we do it right. If not, it's it's what we call a missed opportunity. I mean, we can be honest here, and not just rah rah. Um, I notice when I go to many centers, these contemples, let's say especially on special days, festival occasions, there's a lot more rituals than there is, you know, serious philosophy. You know, there's the there's the Abhishek, there's the uh, the fire yagya, but serious philosophy, not so much. And Krishna himself, one second, and then you're next. Um, Krishna himself says in the Gita. 433, which is the verse before Tadvidhi Pranipatena and all that, you know, learn the truth by approaching the Guru. Krishna says, Shreyan, which means better. In Sanskrit, they have the, uh, like in English, you can say good, better, best. There's like, you know, there's an adjective, there's comparative or very, and then best. So in Sanskrit, also they have that. So Shri, Shri means fortunate or glorious or beautiful or good. And very Shri, is Shreyas, and most Shri is Shreshta. Actually, the Sanskrit still, even in English, we have ST for superlative, like best, fairest, nicest, kindest. That's Sanskrit, by the way. The ST, was, <laughs> the ST like Shreshta, Kanista. So, so just to finish this, so, um, so again, just your question was, oh, so, so Krishna says, better is, this, is the offering of knowledge. In other words, if you use your God-given intelligence to educate yourself in Krishna consciousness in a way that you can present Krishna consciousness intelligently and understand it that way, Krishna says that is better than simply offering paraphernalia, as in puja. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do puja. We do it. 
I mean, we all do it because, you know, it's part of our path. But Krishna's, Prabhupada said that that's to give us strength so that we can go out and teach. And when it becomes an end in itself, you know, it's like bye-bye birdie. You know, it's, it's just um, we're, we're, we're missing the point. When it becomes an end in itself, then we've missed the whole point. So, yes. Well, the combination of science, philosophy, and religion, to me, is most uh, connected in God's commandment to Moses, also not kill. And Krishna consciousness, we don't kill animals for food. Right. Now, if you want to get into the politics of meat eating and the, the rape of the earth and the destruction of the water and the karma involved, it's very scientific. It, you can I can pin it down to the dollar per acre of what kind of gross domestic product you're getting out of it. There's nothing stronger, I think, than convincing people in Krishna consciousness of the four regulative principles, no meat eating, no animal slaughter, number one, and the intoxication, illicit sex, because now we have unwanted progeny, yeah. have pollution all over the earth, and we're going to hell in a handbasket. And, and Kali Yuga, I mean, I've dabbled in Christian consciousness for 40 years. Me too. <laughs> coming to a head where I read the Gita and it's just like, oh, jeez. This is a dire circumstance. Yes, yes, yes. It really is. Yes. The, the amount of pollution and people on the earth in the last 40 years has exponentially increased. Exponentially increased and going forward in Christian consciousness. To me, the single most simplest thing would be to stop eating meat. Now, Burger King is maybe the impossible burger. I know, actually, all, all the all the big chains. Yes. Came yeah. Okay. Okay. Here are a few comments on what you said. First of all, of course, of course, of course, I agree with you about you know. Um, what I tell people is, you see, people can be in, environmentalists and atheists. Yeah. And many of them are. So what I tell them is that before the industrial revolution, the whole earth was kind of organic, but there was a lot of evil. I mean, in basically a pristine organic earth, there were atrocities, massacres, rape, slavery. Right. You know, all these horrible things in the past went on. Okay, give me next. So you know, I don't want you have to, you know, tire your hand up. So, so it's um, it's um, so mere environmentalism won't save the world because, like I said, if you look at the pre-industrial world, there was an incredible amount of evil going on and so um so we have to talk about environmentalism obviously it's it's god's earth and it's our earth and and but then we have to show actually since you brought up environmentalism i use that topic to explain why it is foolish to reject deity worship you know, they have this thing, thou shalt not make graven images, which is completely misunderstood. When I was in Israel, which is, we have a great group of devotees in Israel, amazing community. Um, I actually went over them word by word, that commandment about graven images and all that. Because, I mean, that's, they speak Hebrew, that's their first language. And so we went over it, and it turns out it's been misinterpreted. Because if you actually read the Ten Commandments, 
it's talking about polytheism, worshiping many gods instead of worshiping one god, and then saying in context not to make graven images, graven, of course, like stone images from centered rather than stone, but not to make graven images of all the demigods. Not to actually, it, 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 there's not a clear statement in the Ten Commandments that you cannot worship a deity of the Supreme Lord, which I found very interesting because we went over it again and again, word by word in Hebrew. And so, but my point is the environmental disaster comes from the same cause as the rejection of deity worship. Deity worship is rejected by certain people, iconoclasts, because they think that God is the most holy and matter is profane. Matter is ugh. And therefore, you cannot juxtapose, you cannot bring together the purest with the ickiest. Now, it's that same idea, that historical idea that matter is trash anyway, so we're just trashing trash. Whereas if you understand that, even if you look at what we call simple societies, like I remember an anthropology course I took at UCLA long ago. And, um, and what the, let's say it was a very simple society that lived in the Amazon regions or sort of the Caribbean Amazon, Amazon region. And um, they understood that there is a goddess who rules the forest. And because they lived in a place with a lot of rivers and all that, you know, they had to make canoes. But you can't just go into the forest and cut a tree down and make a canoe. Why? Because it belongs to somebody or it's under someone's protection, namely the goddess of the forest. And therefore, you have to get permission. Obviously, this worldview is not going to lead to industrial, to, to an industrial canoe factory. Or, for example, when I was doing my research, my doctorate at Harvard, I was reading a uh, Sanskrit text from South India that was talking about um, how you build a temple for Vishnu. It's very interesting because they knew, you know, as everyone knows, that when you build something, you first have to level the land. You don't build something on, you know, land that's not level. You have to level the building site. So in those days, they leveled building sites with plows. You know, they didn't have tractors they use plows and since they're building a temple for god for vishnu you don't want to just use some plow you use to grow your rice you know god gets his own plow so that means you have to cut a tree down to build to make the plow now you can't just cut the tree down when you go when you find the right tree you have to first of all acknowledge uh, that you are destroying, you're not simply killing a tree, you're destroying a whole community. Because trees are the center of communities. There are birds, there are insects, there are animals that you know use the shade of the tree, feed off the tree. There's a, there's a huge community around that tree. And you are disturbing, or, or in some cases, you know, really killing an entire community. And therefore, you have to acknowledge that. You have to apologize to all the other souls that you are disturbing. You have to you know, pray on their behalf for their welfare and you know, ask forgiveness, so on and so forth. 
And so what we know is that with that with the combination of basically uh, what Christianity brought to the Western world was a tribal monotheism that rejected all other superior beings. In other words, they didn't believe in, you know, it's not like, okay, there's a supreme God, but they're also demigods or nature is part of God, nature, because what, because if you look at, if you look at ancient Palestine, you know, there was wisdom, there was religion, there wasn't, they didn't have systematic philosophy that came from Europe and India. And so with systematic philosophy, you begin to understand that actually everything is one so that, you know, nature, matter, is God's, maybe Krishna calls it his inferior or external energy, but it's still part of God. And that's what Prabhupada says in the beginning of the Bhagavatam, this difference between the concept of God and the concept of absolute truth. Absolute truth means that everything is part of God. Everything is ultimately divine. Therefore, matter is also divine and, and also belongs to God. God is within matter. And therefore, when you deal with matter, you are dealing with God. And therefore, but, but this, this worldview which stripped nature of divinity, it stripped nature of divinity and made it just profane. The body is evil, which, by the way, that was brought to you by, among other people, St. Augustine, who for 10 years before he became a, a, a serious Christian was a Manichaean. That was a group of people following a, a, a Persian prophet named Mani who believed that why is there evil in the world, that there is a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Because the God who created this world, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus is the devil. And because the devil, I mean, you can understand why with a philosophy like that, he didn't die a natural death. So... Because the devil created this world, this world is evil. Matter is evil. Matter is evil. Your body is yuck. Your body is evil. You find this in Calvinism. Oh, yeah, you'll get to you in a second. You, you, you find, I, sorry, we'll, we'll get to you. You're very patient. So, I mean, I won't go into the Calvinist. I mean, New England, New England basically was settled by Calvinists and people similar to Calvinists. I mean, not all of them, but, but people like Jonathan Edwards who talks about how disgusting and filthy you are and how evil you are and blah, 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 blah. And so with that kind of, and, and so that's St. Augustine, who, by the way, is the most influential theologian in Christianity for many, many centuries. And so with that kind of philosophy, environmental crisis, no problem. Matter is evil anyway. You're just trashing trash. And so anyway, I could go on and on and on. So what we really need is to get back to this very philosophy. And let me ask this uh, young lady who has been sitting forever there trying to ask a question. I was just, um, there's just a lot of questions because I have them. That's why I like philosophy. But um, with what you just said, um, evil, perhaps, what if evil isn't evil? What if evil is rebellion? And rebellion is the irrationality that causes the form like that causes us to want to rationalize and bring that like it's like like kind of how you're saying divide okay okay i think i know what you're getting that i'm going to jump into this okay thank you mm -hmm. that was a great opening 
<laughs> you got you got to travel with me you know, and ask these questions. So, so um, first of all, uh, it depends on what kind of rebellion it is. I mean, for example, someone can, someone can say to you, "Okay, we need to." I just don't want to be with you right now or something like that. You know, I respect you. I love you, but I just need to, I just want to do what I want to do, which is not nice, but it's, I don't even call that evil. However, if someone says I'm rebelling against you, bang, bang, you're dead. That's evil. What makes it evil? Cause it's like, I know, I know that's not, that's not crazy. It might sound like a crazy question, but it's just like maybe what you find rational, the other person, uh, no, no, that that's like postmodern subjectivism. Okay, I'm going to get right to that now, okay. because I think it, that is I think the greatest one of the greatest evils in the world today is postmodern subjectivism. Okay. What uh, is that? I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, it's the idea that there are no great truths; everyone just has their own opinion, and so this your opinion is my opinion. Of course, the problem is if that was true, it would be a great truth. So atheists have this wonderful habit of contradicting themselves. I mean, I saw this, there was this guy named Richard Rorty. He was one of the most famous philosophers in the 20th century. And I, I was preparing for some of my talks. I was watching him, you know, like different lectures he gave and interviews. I couldn't believe it. I mean, how did you get a job at a university? It's because he was saying things like, there are no great truths. Well, that's a great truth. <laughs> So if you say that, you know, everyone just has their own opinion, is that just your opinion? Right. So it's just, it basically, it's just nonsense. It's just babbling. Okay. It kind of rules out your own, that opinion of that opinion. No, no, because, because if we, for example, first of all, we know, I'm going to defend ob ob objectivity. Okay. Now, take, for example, God, I'm, I keep giving the same examples and lecturing in so many places. I got to get some new material, you know, <laughs> so I'm boring myself. But anyway, okay, right now we're here at this program. And there's a balance here between subjective and objective. Because on the one hand, everyone here is a unique person. And therefore, everyone has their own unique experience of what we're doing here. At the same time, there are millions of objective facts. For example, we are in the state of Arizona. We are not on Saturn. Now, if someone says, well, that's your opinion. I think we're on Saturn. Then, you know, please take your meds. So, no, actually, we're in Arizona. We're not on Saturn. And so, or for example, we all agree that, let's say, that we're all human beings. We're speaking English. Now, the reason computers can't really think, which you experience every time you call up some company and get a computer on the other end, um, is because language, just our normal communication, we just be talking to each other. And it, that is extremely complex. Computers are nowhere near, I mean, scientists are nowhere near figuring it out and programming it. Because in, in terms of nuances, tone of voice, our syntax, our grammar, like you are not going, as opposed to you're not going. And so what I mean to say is language is, is incredibly complex, much more than we think. Human, like, human language is much more complicated than most people imagine. And yet right now we're all speaking English, and I am quite convinced that we are communicating. 
you know, whether we agree or not on this or that point, but we, we, we all understand each other. We're all speaking English. And that is a fantastic, like, huge area of objectivity. We agree, for example, in all kinds of moral principles because everyone here is a lady and a gentleman and no one says, you know, you can't say that, you know, I mean, you, in other words, all of us, all of us are agreeing to a set of moral standards of mutual respect of, and, and so on and so forth. And even though, I mean, if we really wanted to get down and analyze it, we could probably pull out dozens and dozens of moral assumptions that we're all making here together. So whether it's about the physical thing that you're sitting on a chair, you're not sitting on a giant watermelon or, or a cactus plant, or, or I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not actually a green elephant speaking right now. But the, I mean, it's, I mean, there's all kinds, there's millions of things that we agree on. So there's a huge area of objectivity. There's a huge area of objectivity. And there is the fact that we are unique individuals. So if you look at the nature of reality, I mean, for example, if you have a GPS, let's say, for example, every day you drive to work and you fully expect that you're going to get there tomorrow because that's because you assume the earth hasn't totally changed and all the laws of nature are different and you could not have science or technology unless the laws of the universe are objective, reliable, predictable, and so our entire lives are based on this almost infinite realm of objectivity. And within that realm of objectivity, we bring our own unique personal consciousness. So and, you say that because uh, going into objectivity, because there are many sciences, so people can be subjective of the objective morale. Not really, they, because that's because science isn't morality. Science can't deal with morality. But for example, okay, let me give you one example to show you what I mean. Uh, let's say we read in the papers that someone killed a bunch of innocent people. And, and we're horrified. We should be horrified. Now, we know that's evil. If someone says that's just your opinion, that's subjective, no, because we know that certain acts are evil practically more than we know that there's a real world out there. I mean, we know, we or, or as much, as much as you know there even is a world, because if there's not a world, what are we even talking about? So as much as you know there's a world outside your mind, you know that certain things are good and certain things are bad. When we see, let's say, a mother loving her child, we know that's good. It's not our opinion. We know that love is good. And if someone doesn't know that love is good, they're just basically mindless. And if someone doesn't know that certain acts are bad, they're just, they're just fools. We know that those things are objectively good and bad. And you know it in the deepest part of yourself. Yes. And when the universe is telling you don't kill, it's because for a reason. And that is for you to go with that law of the universe. So the energy and the vibration can be 
Yes. It's, it's teaching us. Yeah, I'll repeat that for the people that can't hear you. Yeah, uh, can't okay, yeah, this lady said that there is objectivity, there are laws in the universe, and the universe tells us that certain things are good or bad. It's to coordinate things so that things can function. And actually, for example, what we find is, there's an old saying, you know, what does it say? Virtue is its own reward. Actually, scientific studies show that the universe is created in such a way. Uh, Oh, someone just sent in a nice comment. Well, thank you. <laughs> Praise is welcome. Praise me more. No, so, <laughs> I mean, it, it's actually a fact confirmed by, by science that virtue brings happiness. And that's what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita. And that virtue, for example, Krishna talks about knowledge. He used the word yanam. In passion, these three qualities of nature, goodness, passion, and ignorance. He talks about knowledge and passion, knowledge and goodness, knowledge and ignorance. And so, now compare these. In passion, a person, and this is not the positive sense in the modern world, I guess, my passion. It means, passion means like uh, becoming attached to things and losing your equilibrium, losing your appreciation of all things. Like, for example, like like one feature of third world countries or people in first world countries that are like that is that sort of sort of all your moral concern is invested in your family. Like, you know, you'll do anything for your family and you won't do a damn thing for other people. You know, bribe me. You want you want you want a driver's license? Bribe me. You know, you want me to do my service as, as a government bureaucrat? Bribe me. I mean, obviously, your family doesn't pay, and everyone else pays extra. So it's like all your moral concern is sort of restricted. That's an example of passion, rather than seeing that we're all related, because there's one God in the universe. There's really ultimately only one family in the universe. So in passion, you see the differences of people, like different species, different genders, races, ethnic traditions, different religions. And in passion, in, in this jargon, in passion, those are just fundamental differences. People are just different. Men and women are different. People from different countries are just different, you know, different ethnic communities, whatever. Whereas in goodness, you see that within everything, all life, is the same spiritual nature. That ultimately, despite the differences, there, there's a real oneness, a real equality which is based on the fact that we're all part of God. And so that's not just an opinion because people who are in that state of consciousness function better. They are happier. They bring happiness to others. They're healthier even. It's just a better life by every conceivable measure. It's a better life. And it's a more enlightened life. They know everything. Krishna says, they know the differences. I mean, you know, I actually notice that there are different species in the, in, on this planet. I actually notice that there are different genders, different races, different ethnic traditions, different religions, different ages, different age groups. I actually notice that. However, what is really striking about the world is the oneness, the equality. That's the deeper fact. That's the eternal fact. The differences are temporary. The equality is eternal. And so that's not just an opinion, it's a fact. 
You see, in order for everything really to be relative, it has to be a fact that there is no ultimate spiritual reality. Because if there is an ultimate spiritual reality, then, uh, then there is objective truth about the most important things. And therefore, to say it's all relative, you're claiming to know there's no spiritual reality. But how could you claim to know that? How could you be, unless you're God, how would you know that? How do you know there's no soul? In fact, we know for a fact that there must be a soul or something like a soul. It's logically impossible that we are the bodies because the example that Krishna gives in the Bhagavad Gita is that he's, you know, he says, Dehi no dehi. just as in this body, the embodied soul experiences komara, childhood, jovana, youth, adolescence, that most rational time of life, joke, and, and jara, God. I mean, the fact that I survived my adolescence, that I'm still physically alive, is proof that God exists. There's no other rational explanation of how I survived my teenage years. So anyway, um, so Krishna says, you know, we all experience childhood, youth, and old age. And yet, you know, I was a child. I was a teenager. I'm an adult. I, you're the same person, but the body's different. Your baby body didn't stretch into your adult body. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that later. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, a lot of us are having trouble with stretching bodies. So, so, so we know we have different bodies, and yet you're the same person. You had a child's body. You had, you know, teenage body, adolescent body. And so we can't be the body. It's logically impossible because at the deepest level, we know that it, I was that five-year-old. I was that seven-year-old, that 10-year-old, that 15-year-old. We know it was me, but it's a different body. So it's logically impossible for you to be the body. It's not a religious belief. It's necessarily the case that you are not the body. And therefore, what are you? You're something like a soul, and we can talk about that. And then if it turns out that everyone is a soul, then how can you say that everything's subjective? So it's, anyway, I'll, I'll stop here because I have a doctor actually who's gonna kill me if I don't stop this lecture now. I've already gone over time. So thank you all very much. And uh, if you have questions on Facebook, I apologize if I didn't answer them, but I'm already in trouble. So. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.